Welcome to episode 265 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. For our podcast this week, we're going to take a look at facial recognition software and digital disguises. So facial recognition really is everywhere, uh, whether we're talking about uh, these AI-driven systems uh, that run face scanning technologies for law enforcement and government, or the same types of systems that are working in our social media to help determine who is in the photos that we upload on a day-to-day basis. So you can learn an awful lot about people from facial recognition. And there's a number of concerns which we're going to get into. But, you know, just as a starting point, you can learn so much about me. You could see my ethnic background. You could see my age. You could see my current appearance, how my appearance changes over time if you're looking at a lot of different photos. So this type of ongoing surveillance tool can be used for Uh, the public good, right? Or it can be used to harm people, specifically identifying people at times when they may not wish to be identified and violating their privacy rights. You know, all sorts of issues come up. So let's start by talking a little bit about, you know, the personal privacy expectations and sort of that loss of privacy in the digital age. And then let's get into this research being done at the University of Toronto about basically disguising yourself digitally. Yeah, I mean, in in terms of facial recognition software specifically, there's three primary big buckets of use cases. The first one is personal online security and identity. So one of the problems with the historical method of, or not the, I mean, with all of the historical methods of privacy and, and security online protection is lack of usability. And, you know, that's most captured by the password approach where, uh, you know, especially today you need a safe password. Safe passwords are hard to remember. You're supposed to have different passwords everywhere. The rules for passwords are different at different places. It's a total fiasco to try and manage your online security and identity, facial recognition is, was a technology that promised usability in our personal security and identity. We use our face, we look, and we're in, which is from a strict usability perspective is exactly how it should be. Now, the research that's being done, some things that are out there, we'll see why, sadly, this may not be the thing that we had hoped it would be. The second use case is for protecting the public good, organizations like the police using the technology in order to better track us, better identify us in pursuance of their job. And their job is a civic one. It's one that is intended to be in our best interest as a society. The third big use case is corporations using our identity to enrich themselves in various ways. So using facial recognition technology to find out uh, information about us, to identify us, to place us, and to leverage um, however they're using that to monetize us. So, you know, those are, at a high level, those are the three contexts in which this facial recognition software uh, pertains. Yeah, I think... 
You know, just uh, shifting gears slightly now to talk about some of the concerns that each of those scenarios raise. One, of course, is this idea that in our day-to-day lives, we have elements that are private and elements that are public. And in addition to those specific elements, there are even moments within our you know, public and private lives, which may overlap. So for instance, let's say you're protesting something, right? So that is part of your public life. At the same time, you're a part of a collective, right, that's doing something, you know, either in support or, or against a, an issue. And that's not necessarily It could be something that you're advertising and that you want everybody to know about, or it could be something that you want to do in an anonymous fashion, right? Maybe you feel like your company, your boss uh, doesn't need to know about your protest. Public protesting almost by definition is not anonymous. So that's, I don't know, like that person is a little deluded in that case. Well, Well, let me give you an example. Like let's say that in every public protest, you are now identified as having gone to that protest, right? Because- they take a picture of the crowd. So now you can say in this crowd of, you know, a couple Hundreds of, or thousands yeah, of people, thousands whatever of, it is. Yeah. yeah. You specifically were at that protest and you were at a, another protest and, and now your behavior is something that people need to track. Now, I know with knowing people who have protested various issues, I, I'm familiar with their willingness to, you know, be public about their views. At the same time, that does feel like it could be an intimidation factor, right? Like if everything you do that may not be in line with how some powerful authorities Mm -hmm. think, right, and that can be sort of tracked and held as a chit against you, that feels like something that could have a chilling effect. So just as an idea that, public and private, at least up until this point, there are certain overlapping areas where we don't expect our activities to necessarily be uh, tracked, to be remembered, to be emblazoned on us. Maybe I'm the one who's being ignorant or naive here, but I do. like, um, And this goes back for me, it goes back to the popularity of cell phone video, right? You know, now if someone is pulled over and something happens, somebody is having a video of it. If there's something happening at a protest or an event, everybody's phones are up and are recording it and have video of it. So I may only be speaking for myself here. I already assume that I'm captured, that I'm documented. You know, me not being a person of interest, hopefully, it's not being found and leveraged and used and and what have you. But I take for granted it's there. Like, For me, facial recognition technology doesn't introduce a new issue. It's just an additional technology to exacerbate an existing issue for me. But that might be um, unrealistic. I don't know. Yeah, it's certainly something that uh, bears consideration. And I think, Dirk, you are uh, maybe more attuned to the level of technology being inserted into our lives versus someone who maybe isn't in the tech industry and just doesn't have those same expectations. I know that that you're pretty well familiar with the way these things work. And so that sets a baseline for you. Yeah, we're in the bubble. So maybe sometimes we're not seeing it the way that the, the average person outside the bubble would see it. So 
you know, assuming that there are some things that we would like to keep private or maybe every photo of us, you know, we don't necessarily want to be identified in. There's some interesting research at the University of Toronto where uh, researchers have actually used artificial intelligence to create an algorithm which enables a filter to alter a few pixels here and there in a photo, which confuses the AI that would be processing that photo and identifying the facial recognition from it. So you have your photo of, say, the two of us doing this podcast, and the filter does its magic. And all of a sudden, Facebook AI would have a lot of difficulty recognizing that uh, there's two people, John and Dirk, uh, conversing at a podcast. I'd say there's there's two giant melons suspended in air. Yes, uh, <laughs> if we're lucky. Um, and the results, which are being uh, presented, I believe, at an IEEE conference, is that they've reduced the ability for AI facial recognition to be successful down to 0.5%. So not 5%, but 0.5, yeah. which is pretty significant and pretty impressive. The um, The thing that really interested me about this research was that they actually had these two competing AIs, one, one that was trying to identify the photo and one that was trying to actively deceive the other AI and uh, force it to misidentify mm -hmm. photos. And, and that's how they came upon their uh, filtering technology. This idea of the digital disguise, I think this is sort of the start of this. Now, certainly there have been other experiments, and I think there have been uh, uh, glasses and hats and masks, all for the same purpose, which is confusing AI facial recognition, right? Yeah. But but this feels to me like a an interesting step because it's introducing software to sort of combat other software, which shouldn't be a shock to me because uh, it seems you know we have uh, anti malware and antivirus software to combat malware and viruses, yeah. of course. Yeah. So why wouldn't we have anti facial recognition software? So every for every software that you now apparently have the um, the anti version. Yeah, Dirk, how do you how do you see this arms race? Because uh, that's really what it is. This that's right. this, this that's arms right. race proceeding. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's measures and countermeasures, right? I mean, it's as old as as any arms race that you know one side develops something, it's overcome by the other side, which is then overcome by the other side, which is then overcome by the other side. So uh, it's an interesting story. It's interesting in that. Uh, they are producing the countermeasure for facial recognition almost preemptively, um, sort of before it's a huge issue. You know, we don't have people, I mean, here in the United States, for the most part, we don't have people, you know, being thrown into dark rooms and paddy wagons for their participation in, in protesting, to go back to your earlier example. So it's almost being done ahead of the curve. You know, it's being done before we socially having to deal with some of these things. But Beyond that, it's it's you know what you would expect, right? It's the here's a technology, here's the counter. Then there will be a, a you know a counter to the counter and back and forth and back and forth. And you know eventually, um, look, they're going to be able to recognize us by our face unless we are wearing masks or something like that. If we start wearing masks, I'm sure that they'll develop technology to use our bodies or some body part or or whatever. And at some point, authority will be smart enough not to tell us 
what they've done, <laughs> not to give the secret away and say, you know, we know that's John because of his shoulders. I, you know, shoulders certainly won't be it, but whatever it might be. So I don't know. You know, I a long time ago, I kind of threw up my hands and, and kind of stopped worrying and accepted I'm being tracked, I'm being followed. Um, you know, all of the stuff that I do online is cataloged somewhere. And if it came out, I'd look really silly and I'd have to own it. Um, and I'm ready to own it. You know, if I have to do that, I'm, I'm confident that the hidden stupid stuff of the rest of you would be just as ridiculous as my own. And so if I have to eat it, I'll eat it and uh, you'll eat it too. And hopefully we'll, we'll like it together. I don't know what you call that philosophy, Dirk, that sort of the Zen of of um, the digital life, maybe. This story is interesting to me because, you know, it does mirror sort of the encryption, voice encryption in, in particular question, especially around, you know, you see mobile communications are sort of very easily intercepted. And there are a number of services and special phone companies and apps as well for disguising your signal, for making it difficult to listen in on your calls. This feels in some ways sort of like facial encryption, right? The idea that we're, you know, camouflaging ourselves in some way. And I know there's plenty of sci-fi imaginings of how that might be done further, you know, and, and we can dig into those another time. I've certainly watched way too much science fiction, so that would be a lot of fun. But this idea that our digital selves and our physical selves, this interrelationship and the sort of sensitive issues that it raises around privacy, around our ability to function in society, our ability to get jobs, our ability to communicate with each other. Our digital and physical selves are both separate and tightly intertwined in a way that this evolution, I'm just finding maybe a little scary because it's... Um, it feels like I don't have any kind of control over how these relationships are established and formed. And it, it feels like when my digital self is analyzed or spotted or facial recognition is used on me on, on Facebook, it, it feels a little funky. Maybe it's because I'm not a digital native quite, right? I'm like pre-digital native, Gen X, right? So this connection and the ability to manipulate and to analyze my digital self still feels a, a little icky to me. So when I see University of Toronto researchers doing that, I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe I'd like to it try that out. It might save you, John. It might save you. The, the challenge is that the world moves faster today, particularly, than our context of ourself moves. And what I mean by that is, you know, we, we are rooted in the time that we came of age, the way the world was, how we were, our perception of things. And we, people in general, don't change as quickly as the world changes around us. And so every day, as we get a day older, we're that much farther removed from the present. We are rooted in the past in ways that are out of step with the reality of today and what young people take as correct and of the moment in the way the world is. We have a warped version based on our past as well. And so the challenge is to sort of pull yourself forward, you, not you, John, but me, all of us, and move at a faster pace so that we can sort of naturally be in step with that and not feel, you know, not need to feel that safety when it 
comes, but just sort of understanding where the world is and, and where it keeps going. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great conclusion. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everyone, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you'd like to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo, a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging technologies, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at dnemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 265 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. Hey.